Hello and welcome to Beth Takun and the Spiritual Seasons series, where we are exploring the Torah portions and annual Moedim in the light of the yearly calendar and God's overall pattern of salvation. This week we are in Parsha Vazot Habraka, Deuteronomy 33 and 34, the final two chapters of the Torah. The actual reading this Shabbat outside of Israel is the Shemini Etzeret reading, Take it from the middle of Deuteronomy, and Vazot Habraka, these last two chapters, will be read on the day after, Simkatorah, um, which is a Sunday this year. And so it's the only portion Vazot Habraka is that is usually not read on a Sabbath. And for that reason, it sometimes gets skipped altogether in the teaching cycle. And that's a shame, since it's the last portion, and so therefore it's an important portion, as they all are. But um, you won't find as many Vazot Habraka teachings online as you will for the other portions. But since we already covered Shemini Etzeret somewhat in the Sukkot teaching, we'll do Vazot Habraka this week. So here we are at the end of the Torah cycle. It's been quite a journey this year, and I have to say a, a wonderful journey. When the year started, I did not intend to be doing a weekly teaching, but that's eventually what God brought forth. And doesn't he work like that sometimes? He gets your foot in the water and in a way that you can handle, and then one thing leads to another, and suddenly you find yourself doing something uh, more or bigger than what you had imagined at the beginning. And so I've certainly learned a lot uh, doing these weekly teachings this year. Lord willing, I'll be doing one more Parsha teaching for Bereshit, which is the first portion, uh, because that will be the only portion missing from this set of spiritual seasons teachings since we started um, last year in Parsha Noach, the second portion. With God's leading, I do plan to continue doing teachings, though not weekly, and so I'll share a bit more about that in next week's teaching. For now, let's turn to the Parsha, Vazot Habraka, which means, and this is the blessing. The first extraordinarily weighty verse of the portion reads, and this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. And so I say extraordinarily weighty uh, for this first verse because we sense the great weight of Moses's life here being poured out and kind of funneled down into these words. His heart has been for Israel. He has delivered many words to Israel for decades, and here now is the old man, the man of God, 120 years old he is here. And um, what is he going to do with this final opportunity to speak again to the people, to speak words to the people? What are these words going to sound like? And um, what is he going to try to accomplish with these words and this last opportunity in front of them? What will this first leader of the nation try to give to the nation with his last breaths on earth? It's a Jewish understanding that one's final moments somehow contain the whole of one's life in them. What will that look like as Moses stands there in front of the people of Israel for the last time? 
What does someone described as the man of God say in blessing to the people he has dedicated his life to, the people for whom he came to the point of saying to God after the sin of the golden calf, maybe with tears in his eyes, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. You know, the book of life, he's saying, forgive them or blot me out of the book of life. Well, Moses really attached himself to Israel as never before in that moment, I think, that moment of pleading for God to spare the people. His soul is entwined with the soul of the nation, and now we come to the unwinding. And so this is not a simple moment, this blessing, this portion of Vazot Habraka. Well, turning to the blessing itself, it begins with soaring poetic language fitting to the occasion. It begins like this. The Lord, this is what Moses says as he begins the blessing. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you when Moses commanded us a law, even the heritage of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Yeshurun. When the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel as one. Well, the perspective kind of shifts back and forth. Is he talking to the people? Is he talking to God? It's very prophetic here, the language of the prophets, um, we can say. And um, the prophetic language doesn't always follow the rules of grammar as we would uh, normally. But um, the image Moses is so poetically painting here in this brief introduction covers the whole of salvation, the salvation pattern. It begins with light from darkness, which is always the beginning of this salvation pattern. And so I'm going to make the case here that in just this introduction, we're seeing the whole of salvation. So God dawns forth from the gloom, right? Light from the darkness. And each of the place names mentioned here, we have Sinai, we have Seir, we have Mount Paran, Each of these speaks to darkness and to fallen physicality. And God dawns on Israel from those dark places, right? Think of the beginning as this darkness in Egypt, and God dawns on Israel from that place. Well, how do these three names indicate darkness? Sinai is thought to mean thorn, which is an allusion to the curse, And so we can say that the reason the Torah is given at Mount Sinai, the place of the thorn, is because what God does at Sinai is pivotal for reversing the fall and the curse that mankind has been dealing with from the beginning. Well, the second place name, Seir, means hairy. It's the territory God gives to Esau 
Esau being the more physical of the twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. And um, moving on to the third one, one translation of Paran is place of caverns or caves, according to the BDB. That's the translation there. And um, caves are obviously a place of darkness. But more importantly, Paran is connected to Ishmael. The wilderness of Paran is where Ishmael grew up. Ishmael is the more physical firstborn, uh, not born from faith. Right, The firstborn, we could say, of Abraham or Avram, of Avram, as he's known at that point. But he's the one who's not born from faith and the promise, but from human reasoning, right? Abraham or Abram and Sarah getting together and say, well, we better make this happen for God because it's not happening <laughs> according to the promise. And so the idea here is that out of the gloom of mankind's fall and Israel's struggles with Esau and Ishmael, the sun rises. At first, the light is the brightness of God himself, but then God reduces the light uh, to the Torah, right? That, that light is so bright at the beginning, we, it's hard for us to comprehend. And so he has to reduce the light and, uh, to the Torah, which mankind can comprehend. And so Moses says here, after he mentions these three places and God dawning there, it says, from his right hand went a fiery law, for them, ish dot. And so it's pictured here, the Torah, like a, a torch to light the way. And then Moses then moves on to the idea that God trained Israel in the Torah and in, in the way of following God because he loved Israel. And finally, he says, God was king in the ideal Israel, the straight the upright Israel, Yeshurun. This mention of God as king, as we're nearing the end of the introduction, is not accidental. Kingdom, it's like this concept of kingdom, is an end-time theme. And then we have the very last idea here, that the people are gathered together as a body, which, again, is the goal of the process, becoming the body that God dwells within. This is the very last idea we come to with the salvation pattern. And so, at the end of the introduction, Moses says, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel as one. The whole process of salvation, again, is contained within these few lines, these poetic lines of Moses. And here it is once again. God dawns from the gloom. He gives the Torah. He trains us in righteousness. And he establishes a kingdom and himself as king. He is elevated as king over the kingdom. And then finally, we have the formation of the body within that kingdom, the body that God dwells within. And so there's really a lot happening in these few lines. It's amazingly condensed language. This is biblical poetry here at its finest. It's actually quite difficult for the translators to work with these lines. And so you, 
you, you'll see various um, translations for some of these ideas here. But that's, again, indicating sort of the depth of the language, the poetic quality, the, the many readings that you can have within the text, and that's intentional. Well, moving on from these opening lines, the majority of the portion is the individual blessings to the tribes. And so I'll quickly summarize them now. Reuben is first, and he's blessed that he would live and be numbered. Judah is blessed that God would hear his voice, so a Judah-God connection, and that he would be connected to his people, so a connection to his people there, and that God would fight against his adversaries. Levi has one of the longest blessings, and he comes next. Moses blesses Levi to receive the Thummim and the Urim, or the Urim and the Thummim, and uh, have the ability and the right to teach the Torah and to do the work of the priesthood. Because in order to obey God, this tribe didn't regard even their own families. Remember, in the wilderness when they took up the sword and um, against their own brothers after the golden calf. Well, Benjamin is next, and he's called the beloved of the Lord, Yadid Adonai. And he's blessed with dwelling in safety, surrounded by God all day long, and also being a resting place for God. Joseph is next. He is his blessing is especially um, focused on the abundance of his land, the territory given to him, the best of the earth. And Moses also calls Joseph a firstborn bull that will, in a way, overpower the peoples to the ends of the earth. And so we have kind of uh, an evangelistic element there to Joseph. Zebulun and Issachar are next, and they are put together and um, as they usually are in Scripture, Zebulun is blessed in his going out and Issachar in his tents. And they are further blessed that people would go to them to receive treasures from the seas and the sand. Well, Gad and Dan's blessings also seem connected together, although they're not um, exactly together. But, that, but they're both described as lions, Gad as a lion and Dan as a lion's cub. Gad is blessed as a commander and warrior and with the responsibility of executing justice and judgments in Israel, kind of like the policemen, maybe, judges and, and the enforcers. Naphtali is next, and he is blessed with sati satiation, with fullness and he's given possession of the lake and the south. Asher is blessed to be the favorite brother, and that he would dip his foot in oil, and that his door locks be made of strong iron and bronze. Well, moving on past these blessings, the final chapter of the Torah describes the death and burial of Moses. He climbs Mount Nebo, where God shows him the land from north to south, God says to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. 
Moses dies and God himself buries him in the valley there in the east, on the east side of the Jordan, in the territory that is allotted to Gad. Again, he was 120 years old, and it says that his vigor had not dimmed. The people mourned his loss for 30 days. The text then mentions that Joshua was filled with the spirit of wisdom and that the people obeyed Joshua. In the last three verses, I'll go ahead and read the last three uh, verses of the Torah that we've been studying this year. And there has not arisen a prophet since, since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And so the last word is Israel here in the Torah. Well, Grant points out that when this was written, it was true that another prophet like Moses had not arisen yet. But we know that the expected prophet like Moses did in fact come, and he is coming again. And we should all look to the sky now and then and pray for his return. He is Yeshua, the Messiah. Well, a few more words in general about this remarkable last act of Moses, the offering of these blessings. You know, uh, we're learning, uh, the scientists are learning that a tree, when it realizes that it will not survive for whatever reason, does not try to hang on to its stored nutrients and, and energy, but will suddenly push them out through the fungal network in the ground to the surrounding saplings and other trees, even trees of other species, and then it just collapses. Trees know how to finish the race. We're learning that the trees of the forest are constantly giving to each other when they're healthy, especially when one of them needs a little boost to get through a tough time. And at the end, when they know their time is up, they end by doing what they have learned to do in their lifetime, right? They learn how to give. And so they end by giving up whatever else they have left. And so this is a great lesson to us from nature about how we are not to hang on to what we acquire in this life as we near the end. What good is any of that going to do us when we're dead? It is very much like what Paul describes as he is nearing the end of his own race when he says in Philippians 2 that he is being poured out as a drink offering for the sake of those he has ministered to in life. And he rejoices in it. And he says, be happy for me. And uh, this is what we see Moses, this man of God, doing here at the end of the Torah also. He's not just sharing pretty words. He is using the last bits of time and human energy allotted to him, not for the preservation of his own name, but to help shape the future for each tribe. Having led the 13 tribes, if we count Ephraim and Manasseh as separate tribes, having dealt with each of their leaders, having listened to their disagreements, having received their holy offerings, Moses knows 
all of the tribes as no other person does. And God has put him in a position of authority to serve and to bless them like no one else. And so he clearly takes his time and crafts the words he speaks out. He speaks out in these last moments, knowing that God will honor the words he chooses to speak in this final moment with the nation. The Zohar explains that the Hebrew word for blessing is related to the word hamavrik, found in the Mishnah. Apparently this word is not found in the Torah, but it is found in the Mishnah. And this word means to draw down. And so this word blessing is related to this idea of drawing down. Picture Moses drawing down into himself a great inspiration and energy from God and using that to help give shape and definition to the role and place of each tribe. Just picture it funneling down into him and then going out to each of the 13, 12 or 13, and it, it shapes them. He's shaping them and their future. And um, it's almost like Moses is helping to carve into the loosely shaped clay figures that Jacob handed to him. But the power for truly affecting the tribes ultimately comes from God. That, that energy, that, that power is, is coming from above. That Moses is giving the, he's given the authority to tap into that power from God. And so it's Moses drawing that down in the blessings. Well, in this formation process, Moses does not bless the tribes in general, but individually. He is empowering each tribe uniquely. His blessing is helping them to differentiate, to specialize, to find their specific giftings and place in the world, to be lodged in the proper places in the land, right? You, you inherit the lake, you the seacoast, and um, you the south. And so Moses is helping that eventual uh, locating of the tribes to come about. And he knows their specific personalities. And so he um, has an inkling as to where they need to be in the land. Moses is blessing them to be a single body made up of specialized parts, right? This interdependent kingdom, a nation of members that give and receive and you know, as a body does, it doesn't just give each of the parts. It also takes what the others specially have to and are enabled to give. And so this idea of body and kingdom and building of the body are central to this season when we build Sukkot, right? We build tents and live in them. This season when we pick up the four species and, and bind them together and rejoice before the Lord. And the four species atone for each other, covering what is lacking in the others, right? This one doesn't have Torah knowledge or good works, but this one has this and this one has both. And they atone for each other. They become a body together. Well, we are receiving a seed for the journey ahead, the journey in the darkness of winter. And that journey ends in the fullness of life in the body, 
the harmonious life in God's kingdom. Sukkot, when we read this portion, is the final part of the seed of that which will come forth at the end on the other side of the calendar at Purim and also at Passover. Passover is a sort of leveling up for both the spirit and the body of Israel, right? There's new light coming then, but we also see this this whole group of the nations coming out of Egypt with Israel. And so this whole body concept is going to reach a peak at that time, and we're receiving the seed of that now in Sukkot. And here we are reading about this body of Israel and these blessings. And so this idea of focusing on building the body at Sukkot leads us into the frame for understanding the blessings that I want to put forward today. Again, remember that this portion is always connected to Sukkot, this time when we build a house. It is publicly read every year on the eighth day of Sukkot in Israel and on what you could call the ninth, Simchat Torah outside of Israel. Simchat Torah and and Shemini Etzeret are the same day, the eighth day in Israel. So anyway, this portion is connected to Sukkot, always. The tribes make up a house, a body, a dwelling place for God, and a house is constructed of different parts like the foundation and the walls and the roof. And these pieces of the house have to be put together in a certain order if the house is going to be stable and strong. And that's what Moses is doing here with his blessings. So now I'm hinting toward an order, the order of the blessings and the tribes. He's pulling down the blessings to make a house from the tribes of Israel. And so in in ordering his blessings of the tribes, um, he does that. Um, in, a, in a building type of order is what I'm going to argue today anyway. And that this order has been a bit puzzling to the commentators over the centuries. It kind of follows birth order, but not really. And so I, I think the key to understanding the order is found in this season within which we always read this portion, Sukkot. It's found in this concept of building a home and this concept of Moses planting the seed of building the home here with these blessings. And so I don't know if this idea exists in the Jewish literature somewhere of looking at these blessings as the building of a home. I'd be surprised if it doesn't exist somewhere in the Jewish literature, to be honest. Um, I don't know of it, but... um, So again, our topic is going to be how these blessings reflect the order of the building of a house. And so first mentioned is Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob. We're going to call Reuben the idea of the house, right? Before you build the house, you have to have the idea of building the house. And so um, it could be just as... Uh, unformed as just the idea. I should build a house, right? We need this idea to come first. It could be the blueprints as well of the house. Reuben's blessing is one short line, but it has 
troubled the translators. In the NASB, it reads, Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. And so it inserts the word but there, but let his men be few. It's a blessing um, for that beginning spiritual root life itself. But it's also a blessing for limitation. Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. Another way to translate that would be, let Reuben live and not die. Let his men be numbered or counted. Let his men be numbered or counted. So Reuben being the firstborn is that first burst of inspiration, the first energy, but without form or defined boundaries yet. This energy without clear boundaries is the essence of Reuben, what we see him doing in life. And um, so we know that that lack of boundaries can get him in trouble sometimes. The first energy has to be channeled and given form. And it can go in a positive direction or a negative direction. It's a very powerful thing. But um, nothing starts without that first energy, without Reuben. The second part of his blessing, that Reuben's men be numbered or quantified, can be understood as the blessing that Israel's potential, in the end, have boundaries put on it, be that, that the potential um, come to a finite expression. Um, the, the, idea that, um, that the idea of Israel as a body receive in the end a fixed and defined shape that can be filled with the spirit of life to act and influence this world for the good. So what comes after the idea of the building um, or the building plans? We start the actual construction with the foundation, right? Reuben, the idea. Next, we start by moving the earth and creating the foundation. And this brings us to the second blessing, which is for Judah. What does Judah have to do with the foundation? Well, in short, it's Because Judah's essence is founded in humility, the kind of lowness that God raises up to a place of leadership. In the same way that the foundation of a building is both the lowest part, but the part that, more than any other, controls the rest of the building. If the foundation sinks, the whole building sinks. If the foundation bends, the whole building will follow. Right, That whole building is going to bend. The name Yehuda derives from the word hod, which is praise and acknowledgement. Praising is acknowledging and admitting to God's greatness and to his supremacy and that he is the source of life and the source of everything, ultimately. So there is a humility at the root of the act of praising God. And this kind of humility expressed as praise is the foundation of the body that God indwells, right? The humility brings you down low, and then God then raises you up. This is the foundation. It's a service foundation, too. And that foundation is going to serve the whole rest of the building. 
Well, next we, we have the tribe of Levi, Levi. Levi's is one of the longest blessings. More than the other tribes, Levi is the tribe of connection, which is what his name means, the idea of being joined, Levi. Levi is the walls of the building, right? We have the idea, Reuben, that first energy that needs to be contained, needs to be given walls. And then Judah, the foundation, this foundation of humility and leadership and service. Well, then we have Levi with the walls. The walls connect. And they don't only connect uh, left and right and forward and backward, but they also connect below to above, right? They are what connects the foundation to the roof. And in the same way, Levi connects everything together within the tribes of Israel uh, because Levi is dispersed throughout. They get cities, not their own large territory, but cities throughout the nation. And so this one tribe uh, is able to connect together all of the tribes and both um, west of the Jordan and east of the Jordan. And they also connect together the nation with God above. Their, their work at the temple even connects the land itself as all this produce of the land is brought to the temple and offered to God. And so that connects the land itself to God above. So everything is just being connected through Levi and what Levi is entrusted to do. Well, next is Benjamin. And it's another short blessing of Benjamin, he said, speaking of Israel, uh, or sorry, of Moses, Moses said, of Benjamin, Moses said, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God covers him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. Benjamin is the roof, and we can kind of feel that in the description of covering there. Uh, Benjamin leans toward the upper realm, the spiritual side in general, right? We're talking about the roof, what's above. His name means son of the right hand, Benjamin. And we know that the right is the side of spirituality, what we call above, and the left is physicality below. So Benjamin is uh, also connected to the wolf that devours, which is a reference to the altar, which is later built in Benjamin's territory. So the altar takes that which is below, right? You take that animal, you put it on the altar, and it takes that animal and it makes it ascend above through fire. So here, Moses' blessing of Benjamin, as I just said, mentions safety and even covering, this word hofef, the idea that God covers him. God covers Benjamin and this allows Benjamin to be this upward-oriented covering over the building of Israel. Well, next is Joseph. Joseph has the longest blessing here. It's a blessing focused on the land bringing forth life, a blessing of great fertility. It begins, of Joseph, he said, Blessed be the Lord sorry, blessed by the Lord be his land with the choicest gifts of heaven above and of the deep that crouches beneath with the choicest fruits of the sun and the rich yield of the months 
with the finest produce of the ancient mountains and the abundance of the everlasting hills, with the best gifts of the earth and its fullness and the, and the favor of him who dwells in the bush, right? The bush being a, a part of nature, right? May these rest on the head of Joseph. Well, on, I mean, amazing blessing there. On the one hand, we can think of Joseph as the blessing of the land, if we're thinking about our building here. The land that surrounds the house needs to be planted. But, um, and then life breathed into it, the seed put into it, um, and that seed that produces abundantly. So we can think of Joseph in that way. But more importantly, I think, Joseph is also the idea of the people themselves inhabiting the house, making the house a home, the fertility of marriage and family, including children. Joseph comes from the root that means to add. Adonai adds. Joseph is the adding of the spirit to the vessel, the people into the home. And the sense we can take from this blessing is that it's a description of family, a father, the father and mother, and the children, finally. So this blessing begins with the name Joseph, but ends with the names Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's two sons. And early in Joseph's blessing, we see the contrasts of opposites, the heavens and the deep, the sun and the moon, the months. <clears throat> this is father and mother. And then it goes on to talk about the two horns of the ox. And these are the offspring of Joseph, right? That which emanates out from the head uh, is the horns and the strength of the animal. And these are the offspring of Joseph, the two tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, that are powerful in numbers, is what's implied in the blessing. And so, I think what we have here in Joseph's blessing is the realization of the purpose for the home, which is to provide the vessel for the family. And this central purpose comes in the middle of Moses' words here, with 12 verses on both sides of Joseph's blessing, which is something like five verses, but there's 12 verses ahead of those five and 12 verses afterwards. So again, the purpose of building the house is to be a home for the spirit that lives there and acts through that vessel. And that's what I think we're seeing here with the blessing um, given to Joseph, a wonderful blessing. Well, the brothers that follow seem to come in pairs, Zebulun and Issachar, Gad and Dan, and Naphtali and Asher. Why should it be? Why should it be that we have pairs here? If Joseph is, uh, if Joseph is that point of the spiritual and physical meeting, joining, then it makes sense that we would see physical spiritual pairings with the remaining brothers. And so, from Joseph onward, we have both the elements of the physical vessel and the spirit that indwells it. And so, we, we could find, with these remaining brothers in their pairs, on the one hand, the physical parts of the house that remain to be built along or added to the home. 
along with the, the good deeds that fill the house, right? The physical and the spiritual. The house itself needs the finishing parts like the doors and windows, the furnishings like the bed and, and whatever, whatever else goes in, in an Israelite home, and uh, the decorations maybe. Uh, also maybe an outer wall, an outer protective wall to enclose a courtyard and to protect the house, a well or cistern for water, and, and a gate in that outer wall. These are the physical side of the picture with these remaining blessings and these remaining tribes. And then the more spiritual sides can be understood to be Torah study, right? Issachar there in dwelling in his tent, victory over the flesh, and brotherly love. And so altogether, it's quite an amazing thing that Moses is doing here. I mean, there's the whole picture is present there of the building and what happens in the home. And so with his last moment before the nation, he's doing what he can to make Israel into a unified house, a home made of distinct parts that all have their God-given roles, a house that God himself will indwell. Well, lastly here on this topic, many comment that one of the brothers is missing from Moses' blessing, Simeon. And so regarding Simeon, let's first notice that the tribe of Simeon is indeed mentioned in Revelation 7, verse 7, 7-7. So Moses' lack of inclusion here doesn't mean that this tribe disappears, you know, God forbid. So what does it mean? I think what it means is that until certain difficult-to-master potentials are brought under control, they have no place in the early building of the home. Israel is about to cross over the Jordan to settle the land, and so this is a foundational stage of building. And Simeon needs to be limited at this point. And that happens numbers-wise Um, just before they cross over with the sin of Peor. And so, at this moment of the transfer from Moses to Joshua, this tribe needs to be limited, and, and it's limited in a way through the blessings of Moses, because the work of salvation has not yet touched Simeon deeply enough. Simeon is known for anger, um, as with what Simeon and Levi Levi did to the town of Shechem, and again, the sin of Peor, the sexual promiscuity. There's a primal energy, a strong energy here with Simeon that until it's mastered, really doesn't have a place in the home, in the building of the home. But if we fast forward to the birth of Yeshua, we just see something beautiful there that you know, it didn't need to be included, but I just love that it is, this detail. So we see a righteous man named Simeon. We're not told what tribe he's from, but his name is Simeon, and he's there at the temple, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And he rejoices when he sees Yeshua as a baby brought to the temple Simeon's eyes are open and clear, right? We're thinking of the tribe of Simeon, who's left out of Moses' blessings here, 
But here we have someone named Simeon, and his eyes are open, and he's eager. And isn't it the case that those who fall low from such destructive impulses as anger and sexual promiscuity, when they get that mastered, when they get that turned around, they are absolutely on fire for the Lord, right? This, this concept of the Baal Shuva, the, the Lord of return, who can bounce even higher than the Zadik, than, than the, uh, the righteous one. Well, that's what I see in this Simeon, who was hanging on and waiting so eagerly for even just a glimpse of the Messiah, which God is gracious to give him. Well, lastly here, um, and I think this indicates this uh, redemption of Simeon too, right? Not here for the building stage, but later. And so lastly here, and, and, and we see that fulfillment in the book of Revelation where Simeon is again mentioned. Well, lastly here, before we turn to a focus on Yeshua, I want to address an important idea that is mentioned once again here in this last portion. The idea that Moses is not allowed to cross over into the land. It seems to me that this is one of the most often repeated ideas in the whole Torah. I didn't go back and count up how many times, but it just keeps cropping up in portion after portion. And so was Moses, who is the author of the Torah, just bitter? <laughs> and so he kept mentioning, mentioning it? Well, hardly. You know, God forbid. If the Torah keeps repeating this idea, though, then it's important. It's an important idea. And it's important that we try to understand it. The repetition of this idea keeps putting Moses in a negative light. And the Torah wouldn't do that if it didn't have to. The Torah doesn't speak ill if it doesn't need to. And so why is it that Moses is not allowed to lead the people into the promised land, but instead must pass the leadership over to Joshua, Yehoshua first, and it is Joshua who leads the people in. It's a fundamental question here in the Torah, and particularly at the end of the Torah. And so we mentioned um, one level for answering this question in a previous teaching not that long ago. The sages say that what Moses did wrong at the waters of Meribah was hit the rock to bring forth water rather than speak to it as he was told to do. And we are told in 1 Corinthians 10 that the rock that followed Israel in the wilderness is Yeshua, was Yeshua. Therefore, in striking the rock, Moses, you know, subtly aligns himself with those legalistic spiritual leaders in the future who would strike Yeshua. Right? They strike the rock, killing him, these legalistic leaders, religious leaders. So Moses had a stumble in, in, in a subtle way aligning him, uh, himself with these leaders in the future. And that stumble put another lash onto the back of the Messiah. The Torah calls this stumble of Moses a lapse of faithfulness, the Torah itself. In both Numbers 20 and Deuteronomy 32, it says that Moses wasn't faithful. And the result of that unfaithfulness was that he didn't hold God up as holy in the eyes of the people. This key word of being unfaithful here. And so now as we go deeper, 
we need to take a little leap, but I think it's an appropriate one. Moses comes to be basically synonymous with the Mosaic Covenant. We see this in the apostolic scriptures in places like the book of Hebrews, where the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant are compared to each other. The New Covenant is mediated by Yeshua, whose name is almost the same as Yahushua or Joshua. So there's a clear parallel happening here between uh, Moses handing over the leadership to Joshua, right? First comes Moses, then comes Joshua. And there's a parallel here between the Mosaic covenant, which comes first, followed by the new covenant, the one mediated by Moses, the other mediated by Yeshua. So we can ask the question about Moses uh, not going into the land this way. What is it about the Mosaic covenant that doesn't quite get us into the land? What is it about the Mosaic covenant that doesn't quite open the door to the full life, the mature life, the life of thorough victory over our enemies, especially in our own flesh, right? Like Israel under Joshua, going in and getting rid of these Canaanites in the land, this cleansing of the flesh. It doesn't happen under Moses or the Mosaic Covenant, we could say. So here's another way to ask the question, what is it about the Mosaic Covenant that ends eventually in an unfaithfulness to God, that results in God not being elevated properly in the eyes of others because of our stumbling, and also results in another lash to Yeshua's back. Well, I know this is very heavy, loaded language here, uh, but in answering this, uh, first let's establish that we must be attached to God for a time under the Mosaic Covenant. We need this Mosaic Covenant. This is the covenant that is in force at a certain stage of relating to God. Our early relationship with God is defined by this covenant. And so here's a a key piece that we need to keep in mind. As with Moses the man, the Mosaic Covenant doesn't have the power to enable us to be entirely faithful. But what it does do is bring us to repentance. Mosaic Covenant brings us to repentance. The Mosaic Covenant exposes our hearts and leads to repentance. And that is a vital step in our development process. It's a step that we need every time we develop. We need our eyes opened to what's not quite right in there if we are to move on to a deeper relationship in the next stage with God. Again, we can't take a single step upward without this repentance and therefore without this Mosaic Covenant stage that's defining our relationship with God, uh, particularly when we are youthful. And this repentance is the fruit of a covenant that emphasizes strict justice, gevura, right? This word for strict justice, gevura. We need gevura first, particularly when we're young. And Moses himself is associated with this quality of strict justice and awe and fear of God, the almighty God who devastates Egypt. Listen again to the final lines of the Torah, where we hear 
the Torah summarize how the people saw Moses, right? When they saw him, what did they see? And how they related to him. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders, right? We're talking awe that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land, and for all the mighty power, right, Gevura, and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Moses is connected to awe and fear and God's powerful arm of justice And so is the covenant Moses mediates, the covenant that brings us to repentance. Justice brings us to repentance. We should hear in the Mosaic covenant the echo of John the Baptist's forthright language to his generation, right? He speaks powerfully to his generation. The message of strict justice that leads to repentance for the people, as John is preparing them for the ministry of Yeshua that is about to follow. Listen to the justice, the gavura, in these words from John, these words um, about John the Baptist and, and what he speaks to the people of gavura. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And it goes on even a little bit more, right? Boy, we can just imagine the fire in John the Baptist's eyes here. Well, praise God that after we receive the truth spoken in this strict way through the Mosaic Covenant, leading to repentance, God pours out his grace through Yeshua, who mediates the new covenant, which is the covenant that emphasizes God's attributes of mercy and compassion. It is Gevorah first and Chesed second, right? Remember that saying, God wanted to create the, use his attribute of Gevorah to create the world first, but then he realized that's too harsh, that the world can't go on that way forever. And so he creates the world with the, his attribute of Chesed, right? It's just a tradition, it's just a teaching, but It comes from somewhere, right? It comes from somewhere. And so, whereas the Mosaic Covenant does not bring with it the power for faithfulness, this strict justice doesn't bring with it the power for, for faithfulness the New Covenant does. Well, the difference with the New Covenant starts with the one who mediates it, Yeshua. He is the substance of the priesthood that the earthly priests are a shadow of, right? Better in that way. He is perfect. And the sacrificial blood, not just him, but what he brings, his offering, the sacrificial blood he brings into the tabernacle above is his own perfect blood, 
the offering of a perfect human life, which is something the earthly priesthood cannot bring, cannot even dream of bringing the perfect offering, the perfect high priest bringing the perfect offering in the true heavenly temple. So the new covenant is starting out on a superior footing in every way from the beginning by virtue of the high priest who mediates it and the perfect offering he brings. But there's more. What is so incredible about the new covenant is that in addition to the inheritance we have of the Torah written out on stone and parchment, right? We already have that. We have that before the new covenant. And that's important. But in addition to that, we each get a copy in the new covenant of the Torah transplanted into our hearts, which is effectively a transplant into our whole being. The heart is here at the center. And that stands for the whole thing. And that connects together the whole thing. So that's a transplant of the Torah, right? We have it out here. We can look at it. That's the Mosaic Covenant. And that's beautiful. And we need to do that every day. Um, But there's another copy of it under the New Covenant that is filling our mind and our emotions and our gut. In other words, What is external to us with the Mosaic Covenant becomes a voice that speaks to us in our minds and and helps us to dive deeper, 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 deeper into that Torah that we're picking up every day. And this Torah in the heart is a warm rush of love that infuses our emotions. And in our gut is an instinct to walk out love that puts boundaries on our lower instincts. This is a revolution for us in every aspect of our being. And it's the key to the empowered walk of faithfulness. It's the key to staying faithful when we come to that same place where Moses stumbled. And this is why Moses can't quite get the people across the Jordan River, the Yared Don the, the Yardan, the river that represents God's <clears throat> judgment ending in death. Don means judgment, right? This river of judgment that, or that descends from judgment that ends in the dead sea. <clears throat> this river of God's judgment is reversed when they cross over, right? It stands up like a pillar. It's reversed all the way to the town of Adam, When Israel crosses over, it's only under Yeshua that God's judgment can be reversed backward to Adam and forward, right? It's it's cut off forward to the end of everything because it's only under Yeshua and by his blood that God is willing to pour out his mercy on us to individually write the Torah inside each of us, which is the empowerment we need to walk in faithfulness. Well, uh, let me now um, be clear that the problem is not with the Torah, right? And we've said this many times. It is the same Torah written on stones that is written on the heart. We're talking about uh, different covenants here, the agreement uh, that the Torah is a part of, but it's not the agreement itself, the Torah. And so uh, the, the covenants 
are promises that define the relationship. And once again, the Mosaic Covenant is not a bad covenant. In fact, it is good, and it is a part of every step forward with God. It's an early step in our relationship, or an er earlier one, uh, in relation to the new covenant step. And so, um, it helps to prepare the way for the maturing step in our relationship with God, which comes through Yeshua. Well, let's make one final point here today that is directly related to Yeshua and the season we are in, an aspect I haven't touched on much. <clears throat> the rains are about to begin in Israel. We haven't really talked about this beginning of the rains. Praying for abundant rains is what the big festive water-drawing ceremony during Sukkot is all about. Why are the rains associated with the arrival of Yeshua and his special leadership through the journey ahead, right? The Yeshua comes in tabernacles among us. Well, to answer that question, right, connected to Sukkot there, that word tabernacle, what does that have to do with the rains coming at that time? So to answer this question, we need to understand what water is, right? So um, water is many things. Uh, I'm going to put forward just a real brief um, kind of explanation of water here. Water is the element of transition from above to below, the spiritual to the physical, in which the spiritual is put into the physical vessel. And so through the element of water, the physical shell is prepared. And so it is also the context for the spirit to enter the vessel in the same way that the body of a child is formed in the womb, right? The amniotic fluid, the water there in the womb. And then that spirit comes into that vessel that is formed in the water. And so fire, on the other hand, is the element of transition from below to above. Fire takes the physical, spiritual pair and separates them, liberating the spiritual to return to its source above and the physical to return to the dust below. I think one way we are to look at the beginning of the rains is that they are Yeshua's words, his teaching. Everything Yeshua speaks is like water coming to a land that has been dried out by the long parched summer. Each word that Yeshua speaks forms a vessel for the spiritual to come down. It is by taking in this rain that we bring the spiritual into the nitty-gritty of life, the mundane things of life, as the water seeks the lowest place within us, all these little itsy-bitsy parts of our lives, which Yeshua comes to fulfill the Torah in our lives. A seed needs water to grow. Israeli farmers will be preparing the ground soon to receive the new grain for the coming journey. And the true water for the seed that is being placed within us is the teaching of our Master Yeshua. Right? Just as those farmers are preparing the seeds to go in, there is a seed being planted in us and it needs to be watered by the words of Yeshua. And this is why Yeshua speaks out in the temple on the last day of Sukkot, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And uh, maybe this is also why we have the early rains on the one hand and the latter rains. The rains 
uh, having two comings in the year like Yeshua does, right? His first coming and his second coming in world history. Well, that's a lot. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. There's a link to an outline posted below. As I mentioned earlier, I plan to do one more teaching in this series on Parsha Bereshit. And Lord willing, I'll explain a bit of what I hope to do in the season ahead. So stay tuned for that. Well, may God make us um, people like Moses and Paul, who to the very end didn't think of their own comforts and their own plans, but who poured out their lives at the end uh, for those around them. And may we be overcomers who are able to join with others to become a body, right? We have to overcome some fear and some comfort to join with people. It's messy to join with people, right? People are messy. But we need to be able to overcome those things to <clears throat> be made into a temple that God inhabits. And so we may, may we be that kind of person. And may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. And as we say, upon finishing a book of the Torah, Chazak, Chazak, Vanit, Chazek. Be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. Shalom.